Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. In this episode of White Collar Briefly, Perkins Coie partner and former dean of the University of San Diego School of Law, Stephen Farolo, speaks with Pradeep Koshla, chancellor of the University of California, San Diego, and Kurt Schmoke, president of the University of Baltimore, about how they and the universities they lead have confronted the challenges posed by the twin pandemics of COVID-19 and systemic racism. President Schmoke and Chancellor Koshla speak compellingly about the important role universities can play in combating both both of these pandemics, as well as about their visions for the future of higher education in a post-pandemic world. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. I want to welcome uh, Chancellor Pradeep Koshal of the University of California, San Diego, and Kurt Schmoke, President of the University of Baltimore, to this podcast. I want to begin with a statement that, uh, that Kurt made uh, to his community at the University of Baltimore back in May uh, when he wrote the following, in these times, the provision of quality education is more important than ever. It is education that will help us combat what I think of as twin pandemics, the pandemic of coronavirus and the pandemic of racism, close quote. These two pandemics, how they're impacting higher education and the important roles universities are playing in addressing them of the topics of our conversation today. I'd like to begin by asking uh, each of Pradeep and Kurt uh, to introduce himself, to tell us a little bit about about their impressive backgrounds and their current leadership positions, and and, and also inform those who may not know as much about their institutions uh, as as, as I do. Pradeep, would you like to start? Thanks, Stephen. So really appreciate this opportunity. Good to be here on this podcast with you and Kurt. So let me first say, Kurt, thank you for that quote. It is extremely, uh, how should I say, thoughtful. But here's the difference between the two pandemics. In one case, we have a vaccine. In the other case, the vaccine has eluded us for more than 200 years. So we need to do something different. And I don't know what that is. But I can tell you as chancellor, I am working on it and we'll get to that. So I am the chancellor of UC San Diego. This is year nine for me. I came here from Carnegie Mellon, where I spent like uh, 30 some years at Carnegie Mellon. And this institution uh, is a 40,000 student institution with a $6 billion budget with our research program being $1.5 billion. We have a very powerful uh, hospital, a medical center. We are in the country as a public institution in the top 10 and maybe like top five when it comes to research budgets. So we are part of the UC system. Uh, a full-service institution, the only two things I think we don't have are a school of architecture and a school of law. Uh, Otherwise, we have everything else. So that's who we are. I can talk more about that later. That's great. (laughs) Well, our little school, (laughs) after listening to Pradeep's description, uh, the University of Baltimore is a part of the University System of Maryland, uh, but that uh, system has 12 universities, with the largest being College Park at about 35,000 students. We came late, in fact, to the system. The University of Baltimore started in 1925 as a merger of a night law school and a night business school. Uh, 
So it's always been very much career oriented. And we are considered in the system now the premier regional university for career advancement. Uh, We only have 4,000 students. So I think if we were in California, we'd probably be a part of the California state system as opposed to the, the UC system. But we have uh, a unique status in the University of Maryland system in that we're the only school that has a law school and an undergraduate program on the same uh, campus. Uh, we're located right in the heart of, of Baltimore. Of course, now uh, with the pandemic, uh, location hasn't been as much of an attraction uh, as it normally is uh, for us. But the city is our campus. And um, we're very proud of, of where we are with these uh, 4,000 uh, students, again, with the law school kind of being the, the unique part of our, 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 our system. So uh, that's us in a nutshell. And uh, we, we, we don't have intercollegiate sports. Uh, we're a non-residential uh, campus. So I, I brag that our, our teams are undefeated. And uh, we we can move on from there. So maybe if I could ask you to talk a little bit more about your backgrounds, Uh, uh, Kurt, you're not unfamiliar to Baltimore, but this is a new role you've been in as president. Now, how long have you been president? I have been president since July of uh, 2014. Uh, Yeah, prior to that, I guess mine was more of an unconventional path. Uh, to a university presidency. I was previously the mayor of Baltimore. In fact, my my wife, sort of tongue-in-cheek, uh, says I served 12 unindicted years as uh, <laughs> mayor of, of Baltimore. And pr- prior to that, I was the state's attorney. I guess that position would be DA, district attorney in, in California. So I was uh, the DA, then elected mayor uh, for uh, uh, 12 years. And after uh, leaving uh, that job. I went to uh, work in uh, private law practice with the law firm of Wilmer Hale in D.C. and then served nine years as the dean of the Howard University School of Law and uh, three years as general counsel, interim provost, a number of positions at, at Howard before beco- uh, becoming president of the University of Baltimore. And Pradeep, how about a little bit about your impressive scientific background? So, you know, this is year nine for me. So I came here in 2012. And I came here from Carnegie Mellon, where I was Dean of Engineering from 2004 to 2012. But I started my career at Carnegie Mellon in 1982 as a PhD student. And I just stayed there, went rose to Dean and also University Professor. So in many ways, it is a traditional career, but in some ways it is non-traditional in the following sense that I came from an institution as private as one can be private to an institution as public as one can be public. I mean, it was diametrically opposite. I came from uh, being the dean of a $200 million college to, at that time, a $3.5 billion institution with a powerful medical school. So every so often, I kind of pinch myself and said, how did this happen? Is this real or not? But I can tell you that uh, the president, Mark Udoff, when he made this call, clearly he saw something that I had not seen in myself all those years, and I'm glad he saw it. So (laughs) I'm glad I'm here. (laughs) But my background technically is robotics and AI and autonomous uh, robots. Uh, But the real non-traditional part of my background is 
the three years I spent in Washington, D.C. at DARPA, uh, which is Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, managing large programs in autonomous systems. And that's what like gave me a taste for science leadership, science policy, uh, putting large teams together, taking a background while seeing, still being in the foreground and very interesting uh, being in the public eye without uh, getting indicted. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, at least we share something in common. There. <laughs> but, 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 having, but having said that, I have had my own share of newspaper articles. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, none of us has been indicted. That's a, that's a good statement in this day and age. So let's let's start let's start with the pandemic of racism. I mean, Pradeep, you made a very very compelling point that. One of the big differences between pandemics is it's not a vaccine for, for racism, and it's been around for a very, very long time, centuries. But could you each address how your institutions are addressing issues of racial injustice and racial disparities, particularly at this, at this time? So from my perspective, I think at the end of the day, it is about having a critical mass of people of different types and in different clusters for two reasons. One is that people in that cluster feel that there's enough of them and they have a say and they're visible. And people in other clusters know there's enough in each cluster so that nobody can be walked over that easily. Now, having said that, in spite of all of this, this country is famous for having never given women their voting rights, even though they're more than 50% of the population. So it's not just about numbers, it's also about mindset. So the first thing I tried to do was uh, look at our admissions and think about how can we expand, in this case, the number of African-Americans and the number of Hispanics or Latinos in the undergrad body. And in the eight years that we've, I've been here, our number of African-Americans, which is still pathetically low, went from 1.8% to 3%, which is actually a big jump, but it's still pathetically low. But now remember, California is only about 7%. California is African-Americans as compared to like 13 or 14 percent in the country. So California is a little bit distorted. And Hispanic uh, Latino population, we went from like 13 percent or so to like 22 percent. So we're on our way to being an HSI. So that was number one. Number two, my cabinet is the most diverse cabinet. Out of 17 people, 10 are women. More than 14 are like people of color or women or LGBTQ. So we have a very diverse cabinet. Thirdly, I have changed the hiring practices where we have doubled the number of women in our middle management positions. I have five deans who are now women when compared to zero out of 10 deans like five years ago. And this institution, which is only 60 years old, had a chance to fix itself. So on one hand, this institution has been spectacular, just to give a little bit of history. When we were created in our local community, La Jolla, there were covenants in real estate where Jews were not allowed, people of color were not allowed, Indians, Chinese, Blacks, you can just go down the list, right? We were the institution that broke all the covenants, but we were also the institution that did not break the covenants inside the institution. So I have seen my job as breaking that covenant and really expanding our uh, reach and our influence to show people how we can be anti-racist. And the last thing we did uh, most recently was this 21-day Chancellor's 21-day anti-racism challenge, which people then complained that, oh, this was a one-shot deal. It's not going to fix anything. But to me, this was not about a one-shot deal. To me, this was a way of doing business that became part of us in our DNA. And we keep on doing it 
for not just anti-blackness, anti-Hispanicness, anti-Indianness, anti-Jewishness. I can just go down the list, right? We've been really adept at being discriminatory for a very long time in this country, <laughs> and we need to stop that. You know, there's a lot of uh, interesting uh, connections uh, as I listen to Pradeep uh, talk about that. Uh, you know, Baltimore is the uh, home of the uh, national anthem, but we are also the birthplace of the residential racial covenants. It's that it started here and then spread spread uh, throughout the country, and fortunately. Uh, the uh, Supreme Court, uh, you know, as you know, Stephen ruled against those uh, covenants many uh, years ago. But our demographic situation is very different than San Diego. We have a our, our city is a is relatively small; it's only uh, six hundred fifty thousand people, and we're sur- actually uh, surrounded by wealthier and whiter counties. Fortunately, our student body is is, uh, very diverse, almost half white and half non-white, and uh, makes us kind of the the most diverse university within our system. There are a lot of things that we've tried to do to address this uh, pandemic of racism, but we had a particular challenge in Baltimore arising out of the situation with a young man named Freddie Gray, who uh, died in, in police custody. And of course, as we all know, over the past few years, there's been a lot of attention to this whole issue of police community uh, relations and as an aspect of the, the problems of race, race relations in, in our country. And so we made a decision that was somewhat controversial when I first made it, but now things have calmed down. Uh, our police department had their academy located in an old converted uh, middle school, and it was just an awful uh, situation, dilapidated, cold in the winter, hot in uh, the summer. Uh, the police department was under a federal court decree to improve a lot of things about it. The, our new police commissioner just said, I need a location that says professionalism. I need a location that can have our uh, young men and women who are coming into the academy interact with the community in a different way. So we actually had uh, one of our our buildings on campus that we were no longer uh, using, and I was looking to monetize that particular facility. So we moved the police academy onto our campus. So the Baltimore uh, Police Academy and Training Center is now on the campus of the University of Baltimore. Uh, Our faculty from the College of Public Affairs has uh, uh, made proposals to the academy for, you know, some interdisciplinary, I guess you would have it, uh, or multidisciplinary work. But the, the fact that the cadets are there, even during the pandemic, you know, the rest of us are no longer there. They're still there. But us post-pandemic, we'll be back together interacting on a daily uh, basis. And I think it's going to make a difference uh, over time in the way in which these young officers interact with the community. And hopefully we will see a decrease in some of the abuses that we have encountered in Baltimore, you know, over the past few years. Troy, in making that move, was there any resistance from the community, from the faculty and the students? Uh, Some particularly some of the um, African-American students who had had bad experiences interacting with white police officers in the past uh, raised uh, the concerns. 
And a handful of, of faculty uh, members also had concerns, but we talked it through. You know, I, I met with the Student Government Association. I actually had the police commissioner come at a, at a second time uh, to talk. Fortunately, he had had a similar experience in New Orleans after uh, difficulties that they had related to Katrina and police action there. Uh, their uh, police academy had been wiped out by the flood, and so they moved it to the University of New Orleans. They had very positive experience uh, there. They ultimately built a new one separate from uh, the university. But the fact that they had, he had an experience with a university that was very positive, I was able to also recommend that some of the uh, people who were critical to contact the people at the University of New Orleans, find out about that experience. And so the criticism just kind of, it didn't completely go away, but the, the, the level died down and, and more people uh, agreed with me that having the police academy and training center on our campus was a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Uh, and so that's, we were able to move forward. Uh, and we've had two graduating classes from there since they've moved on. So I, I, I think it's going to really help our, our community. And that's just one part of a uh, you know, multitude of issues related to, to uh, uh, systemic racism, but I, it, it's certainly important for our community. Thank you, Kurt. Uh, but you, you talked about how it starts with admissions and basically uh, changing the profile of the student body. What about the impact of the recent defeat in California referendum on affirmative action? What do you think of that? And how is that going to impact your school? And what are you going to do uh, to, to address the issue? So if you go back and you look at life before Prop 209, which is the proposition in California, which tells us that you cannot take race into, into consideration into anything, admissions, hiring, jobs, nothing, right? The argument is that our diversity has changed and reduced, uh, especially in terms of number of African-Americans uh, on all the 10 UC campuses. So I was a big supporter and I wanted us to be supporting uh this new proposition, which would put allow us to put Prop 209 on the ballot. So this proposition did not defeat uh, affirmative action directly. It defeated it by saying 209 cannot go on the ballot, right? I think there is a big concern in the broader community, and actually across the country, one can see it, where when they, people think of affirmative action, at least in my mind, they see it as codas. They see it as like 10% for this and 12% for that and 49 of this and 29 of that. Whereas when I think of affirmative action, I just want to make sure that we are not using somebody's race or ethnicity against them implicitly. And we make an explicit consideration of race or ethnicity in our admissions policies, but we have no quotas. And our regents actually made a statement that there will be no quotas. So I think it's a very subtle distinction where most people, they hear you but they don't believe you. They think it's going to become like CODAS. Uh, whereas I think the reason racism survives is because implicitly we take away opportunities from people and we don't see that as non-affirmative action, whereas affirmative action, we see, see it as negative. So I think there's a whole lot of education that needs to happen. I mean, look, I, uh, being of Indian origin, uh, even though Indians are 1% of the population in this country, they have done as an po immigrant population uh, done reasonably well, even though their history of abuse in their own country is <laughs> pretty bad 
when it comes to colonialism, right? So I think we can understand even, uh, so we understand what it takes. And I think we really need to move this needle. Otherwise, it doesn't work. This country will not work without being completely diverse and inclusive. I made a statement, once. let me just uh, say this, uh, which basically the argument was the following. If you look at this country by 2050, about the white population of this country would be like 45% in that ballpark range. If you assume half the white population is women, so the men are only 22.5%, 22.5% or one-fifth of this population cannot be a dominant economic power if they don't include the other four-fifths of the population, Okay. And I think that, to me, is a strong argument. For our own very survival, we need to be more diverse, more inclusive. End of story. I wish uh, everybody else viewed it in that way, Pradeep. It it seems that there are many people who are fearful of those statistics. Uh, And that's what we're seeing, I think, on the street. Uh, now with some of these groups like the the Proud Boys and, and, and others, that they look at the demographics and are far more fearful uh, than, they, than they really should be. I agree with you, Kurt. They are fearful, but their fear is not going to change the trajectory of population demographics. I mean, that is really dumb. We need to embrace. The, it's a tsunami. Either we play with the force of nature or we oppose it. When we oppose the force of nature, we kill ourselves. When we play, when we work with it, we actually amplify ourselves. That's why I think that the tone at the top is always, uh, you know, important. And uh, my hope is that not only in the national administration, a a new tone will be set, but in all of our institutions, uh, you know, higher education, corporations, things of that uh, nature, that we can uh, talk about the strength through inclusion rather than um, a weakness, as, as some people see it. And I think we need to do that, Kurt, because I think we have focused on the word diversity so much that we forget that inclusion is way more important and significant. Even in the same family with the same DNA, there's lack of inclusion. And we have seen, we see that in many families, which becomes a basis for family fights and breakups in the family, right? So inclusion to me is extremely important. And if we become inclusive, we will by definition become more diverse. And Stephen, one of the things that really concerned me uh, is just looking at my own city, the uh, fact that elementary and secondary education is, is uh, essentially resegregated so that uh, young people from the early age are not uh, interacting in the way we had hoped. Uh, they are still separate. And that makes it more difficult, I believe, uh, to overcome some of the problems. And then they start hearing things at home about those people, and uh, you know, from all, all sides. And so it, it would really help us a great deal if uh, our, our dreams, uh, our hopes and dreams about desegregation in uh, public education were actually realized. Yes, I mean, I think, I think the, you know, the inequities in public education uh, are a serious, a serious issue. And those of us who are products of the previous days of public education are concerned about that in terms of the disparities creating in our society. So thank you for that point. So Kurt, you talked about tone, um, and and both of you, both of you have set strong tones in your institutions. You're you're known as visionaries, and you had visions for your institutions that were very very ambitious in terms of transforming your institutions, the impact that they play. How has you know, the, the two pandemics, um, and, and we can start to transition to COVID, the, you know, the race, the, the, the current situation over the last, let's say, uh, nine to 12 months, how's that affected your vision and the way in which, has it changed your vision? 
or has it changed the planning for that vision? Or how has it impacted uh, how you see the futures of your institutions? Well, I can tell you for us, again, we're a smaller institution. And one of the things that I was really uh, promoting was trying to break down the silos of the various academic departments and uh, make you know, a multidisciplinary approach the, the rule rather than the a, exception. And that did require more interaction with people that uh, the pandemic has, has hurt. It's almost put that on hold. And that that's a serious concern uh, for me. We're still working on, you know, some of those uh, issues, but there are times of getting people in the room together is uh, extremely helpful in, in resolving some tough issues. So the, that that's one area where the, the COVID-19 pandemic has been a real detriment to us. So, you know, I think the way I have thought about this is by converting my campus to be primarily residential. And let me explain this to you. If I look around the country, I came from Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh, there are multiple ethnic communities, the Polish Hill, the Italian Hill, you know, the Russian Hill. I mean, literally, because Pittsburgh is very hilly, because when immigrants came, they all clustered around. And even today, I see the Asians live together, the Indians are in a community, the whites are in a community, the African-Americans are somewhere else. And I think college is one experience, given that a third or 40% of the country goes to college, where we can break those silos by showing people how to live next to each other in similar situations rather than flaunt your wealth. So that, to me, is an important part of a residential experience. The second important part of a residential experience to me is uh, not traveling too much and focusing on your educational uh, development rather than and in addition to your core curricular development. So what I have promised is a four-year housing guarantee to every undergrad at 20% below market. And this 20% below market is an important number for me. It's partly to address the cost of education. But more importantly, it is my way of telling the world that, look, you gave us this land for free. San Diego City, San Diego County, the military, they gave us this land for free. So when I look at real estate development, 20 to 30% of the cost of a housing project or a building is the land. So that is my way of giving back to my community that gave me something for free uh, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And I don't see that type of ethos, if I may say so, in most universities. And I think we need to know that we were created by the public, for the public. Even the most private universities in this country country are run by public money. Without public money, there is no private university. We call it Pell Grants, call it research dollars, uh, call it tax breaks. I don't know. These are all public investments in, your, in the university. Yeah, Stephen, I, uh, that, that's great. Um, I just wanted to point out one of the reasons that we haven't moved towards a residential campus. Most of the average age of our undergraduates is 28. We serve a, an, an older student population. Uh, more than 70% of our undergraduates are people who have gone, who are working first of all, and who've gone to community college. 
and they're tra uh, transferring to us from a community college and they're still uh, working there, mostly in the metropolitan area, the city and the five counties surrounding uh, Baltimore. So the appeal of the, there, there's less of a an appeal for them, that population to be in residence on uh, campus than there would be if we if let's say the overwhelming part of our undergraduate population were the 18 to 24 year olds. But that that's not us at all. So it I, I think it's you know wonderful to be able to have that as an option. But uh, U University of Baltimore tried. Uh, to do that several years ago prior to my uh, coming there. It, it, it was an experiment in residential uh, uh, life that did not work out. So we said, here's, here's, this is where we're, our, we're strong on the uh, non-residential uh, side. So let's embrace that and uh, do what we can, though, to build a sense of community. And we tried to do that through our various extracurricular activities uh, and things of that nature. And through this, as I said, breaking down the silos of academic departments. So, Kurt, that makes complete sense. Not everybody has to be exactly the same. We have like, so no, we in this country divide the universities into two or three different types or four maybe, but there's like 50 different types depending on the community you are in, uh, the population you serve, right? So I completely agree with you. And deciding to go residential for me was based on who we are mm -hmm. uh, and the trajectory we were on. But, but it seems to me, Kurt, looking at looking at your school, you, you really have tried to build a community around your around your campus. Uh, making more residents. So talk a little bit about that because in that case, the, the campus becomes an anchor for community. Uh, yeah, what, what, because we, the, the location is right in the center uh, of the, the city, we have uh, tried to partner with a number of different organizations, including um, the museums, which are, are close to Maryland Institute College of Art, the Community Foundation, as I mentioned, the police, and then of course, one block away our train station and so we focus on you know the transportation and and welcoming we're the first thing people see coming out of a, a train station so we try to be a welcoming uh in environment but yes we have a number of uh of programs uh, for our young people and on the point that i was trying to make earlier and i kind of got off track a bit about the elementary and secondary we reach a lot of programs from the university of baltimore reaching into the public school system to let uh young people in particular who are in those high schools and middle schools that are not traditional feeders of college kind of lift their sights about what they can pursue, what they can be. And so we have a number of early college programs well, with the uh, public schools uh, to, to do that. And that too has been very helpful in building a sense of community and also uh, making sure our, our students are very involved in civic engagement projects. So, so maybe we could turn a little bit now. It's it, the, the, the fall is coming to an end. It's, 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 it's Thanksgiving time. And I'd like us to, to, to you to talk a little bit and evaluate how your institutions have succeeded this past term and this past semester, you know, in the dual responsibility of keeping your students, faculty and staff safe uh, and providing high quality education. You took very different paths to, to that, given the nature of your institutions. And maybe you could talk about what's worked, what's not, what's not worked and your campuses, what lessons you've learned and, and what lessons you have for others. Well, I think, Pradeep, you, you had more complicated situations. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, look, we have, like I said, 40,000 plus students. Uh, we have about 17,000 beds on our campus. 
And the first thing we did is we said everybody's going to be in a single room. So we have close to 9,700 students on campus right now. But before we got to this point, it was clear to me that we needed two things. We needed to have significant testing capacity. And we needed to do asymptomatic testing as frequently as we could, which was not pretty well accepted uh, in the country, believe it or not. The president of Brown was the first one to make a statement without any supporting infrastructure behind it. And I was building that infrastructure. So we were the first university to announce a return to learn strategy. So what, in terms of building capacity, I was always nervous about uh, somebody in Washington, D.C., and it's not Kurt taking over my logistics supply chain. So I basically built like two different laboratories, each one with a capacity of 5,000 tests per day, using four different types of manufacturers, three different types of reagents, so that my supply chain was resilient. So that if somebody took over, only one line would go, they would not take over everything I had done. So this was me, the engineer, trying to build a resilient fault-tolerant system because I knew what the fault modes were. So once we had that capacity, I had my modelers, infectious disease people, everybody get together and create a plan. And the plan was initially to test every two weeks to move to one week, uh, every week, which is now, instrument our buildings with uh, sewage samplers uh, where we could by sampling the sewage. So it turns out your virus is uh, shed by the body in your fecal matter like three to five days before you become infectious or before it starts shedding from your nose. So we have 50 plus samplers right now going up to 100 plus uh, outside every building is being sampled. Like literally last evening, we sampled like six buildings tested positive. And today we have like 2,000 tests set up for everybody in those buildings to come in in the first six hours to get tested. Our testing return time is less than 15 hours. So we have built an amazing infrastructure, not just to open our campus, but I wanted to show the world how R1 University, sitting in a major metropolitan area like uh, San Diego, could be the role model of not just opening the university, but opening other universities and opening the businesses and the infrastructure and the county around us. So I'm actually really glad the way we are going. I probably over-designed this system, but I'd much rather over-design and not have failures than under-design and deal with failures. <laughs> well, that, that's really outstanding. And it just shows that uh, each university or each institution, you know, made decisions based on their particular, you know, uniqueness. I, I decided, given our, our population, that in the middle of May, uh, and, and based on some discussion with our health commissioner, this pandemic was going to get worse before it got better, that situation that is. And so I decided that we would go online and telework completely, with one minor exception of the uh, law school's uh, clinic, uh, law clinic, because we were representing some clients uh, in the area, and the American Bar Association at that time wasn't clear about what they were going to do in terms of uh, certain uh, uh, the accreditation issues related to uh, the um, the pandemic, but the rest of the programs we went online and telework. Now, prior to COVID nineteen, however, half of our academic credits were offered online. I mean, so you had the option, so it was pretty easy for us to move to an entire online. Uh, situation. So we did that for the end the spring end of the spring term, 
through the summer into the fall. And I've announced that, uh, you know, unless there's some dramatic change in the public health environment, we're going to continue to be online telework for the spring semester. But again, we, we just didn't have some of the challenges and some of the issues that the residential universities uh, had, because I know some of my colleagues in particular at our historically black colleges, we have four historically black colleges and universities in, in Maryland. And the presidents there made a strong argument that for many of their students, it was safer for a whole variety of reasons for them to be at the university rather than to to be home. And um, they made some of the uh, same uh, decisions that Pradeep has just described with half other popular, or some just had the freshmen on campus, some had ha half the uh, population, and I don't know how they made the decision about which half should be on, but they did that and they were pretty successful. Uh, many of them uh, started their uh, fall semester early and will finish at Thanksgiving and not come back until uh, late January. So, you know, Kurt, we are letting our students come back when they go away from Thanksgiving. And my logic for in-residence was 40% of our students are Pell Grant recipients. Taking classes at home, where you're living in a two-bedroom apartment with three siblings and two parents, or you know, is really problematic. And I think we don't appreciate that even though uh, the, this institution is located in a rich area, but like 40% of my kids are first generation and Pell Grant. So they live in some challenging situations and I wanted university housing to be open for them. So that was part of our criteria to open up, even though only 10% of our classes are in person right now. I mean, most of them are online. People living on campus, most of the people are taking only online, but the quality of living here is much better. And lastly, our positivity rate is use was 0.1% until last week. It is 0.3% today, but it is 9% right like half a mile away from where I am. Goodness. So <laughs> we yeah. have created a complete bubble for our people. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Maybe want to get more people going back to university now. <laughs> yeah, no, they are. In fact, I tell you, as we speak, you know, our applications for next year are up like so double digit numbers because people have seen what we've done. So. Pradeep, one aspect of the of the various measures you've taken, you didn't talk about, is the is the tracing system that you uh, that you built for the, for the students. There was an article about it in the paper just the other day. Again, right. So we did not build it. It was built by Apple and Google, but they wanted to work only with the county and the in this case the state health departments. So we worked with the governor's office, and we became one of the two test sites, beta test sites, us and UCSF. Uh, where we implemented the system uh, for tracing and tracking both. And just literally last week, we expanded the system to other all the other UCs and including outside UC, right? So it's been very successful, and we are detecting hits based on that system. Yeah, it was a pilot program. I mean, one of the issues, initial issues, was issues of privacy, and how did, right. you, how did you deal with that? So people, you know, people are always concerned about privacy, but here's the irony of their concern. On one hand, you go to, like, Ralph's, which would be this, our grocery store, or Duvon's, they know more about your eating habits <laughs> than even your wife does. Okay? So, so there's no privacy there. Now, you take that data, combine that with your credit card data, 
which is all being sold, suddenly people know more about you than anybody, including yourself, knows about yourself. And but uh, but suddenly you become nervous about oh, what if they know my location? So it turns out Apple and Google figured out how to be private and how to anonymize it. But to me, that created more problems and delays. I think we need to just get over this notion of privacy. I can see your DNA being private, but you know, your eating habits, your traveling habits, what car you drive with, where you live. I mean, everything is publicly known. I mean, I don't know what privacy means nowadays. And this is me who's a cybersecurity person and a privacy person talking, okay? <laughs> I was just laughing because uh, you don't want to say that to my law faculty. <laughs> I, I was I was thinking exactly I was thinking exactly the same thing. Where, 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 you know, uh, you could tell Kurt, Kurt's engineering background how everything was over 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 engineered and planned. Where lawyers were thinking about the risks and the legal issues. Kurt, maybe you could talk a little bit about. So you know, you you've had the semester. The campus has pretty much been shut down. You compared it to other institutions in, in Maryland and elsewhere, and and now you probably next semester is going to be the same. What about the students and the faculty, their reactions, concerns about loss of community and connection and things like that? Could you maybe address some of those issues and how they're impacting your university? You know, it's interesting. It's been a real mix this semester. I agreed to co-teach a seminar on um, uh, election law. And uh, I had uh, a couple of years ago uh, co-taught another uh, course about, you know, urban uh, issues. This year with Zoom, students showed up all the time. <laughs> we had perfect attendance, <laughs> there are, you know. Uh, so on, on one hand, uh, you, you know, you missed the personal interaction. But on the other, uh, we had fairly good classes uh, during the semester. But uh, I wouldn't trade it. I, I don't want our school to become 100% online. I, I think there's a real value. And uh, most of the faculty have, have said that too, so to that some in-person contact, at least on a maybe a hybrid basis, some uh, for convenience sake uh, online. And even on the, the online situations, we found that the students more and more said, please let us have a synchronous experience, not an asynchronous experience. That So it just reminded us the importance of that uh, immediate interaction. So it's been a mix, uh, but um, I have found, uh, I think I'm I may have mentioned to you, we have a, a small number of students that we uh, admit straight out of high school. Now, most of our students are, are from, uh, are older and from community college, but there are a handful that come to programs that we have on simulation and game design, some of our uh, cybersecurity programs, some in the business school. But again, what we have found is that the 18 to 20 year olds are not doing as well with this change to online as opposed to the 27, 28 year olds. They, they've come, they got real focus. They don't have a lot of time. They know exactly, you know, why uh, they're uh, there. They uh, uh, are used to maybe because of employment or whatever, uh, working on online. 
and uh, it's been easier for them. I'm I'm sure that you know with so many of these young people, you know, in their elementary and secondary education, used to you know using technology, that this will change. But right now, for us, we're finding that the older students have adjusted much more uh, easily than the uh, uh, the younger students. But we'll, we'll hopefully in the springtime, I'm looking, for example, to the ways in which we can have some outdoor gatherings in May to uh, particularly for those who are in their senior year. Uh, I'd, I'd like them to have some physical connection with the university before they graduate. I, I just think that it will help us out in the long run. Just a, a little bit in terms of vocabulary, I think one of the misconceptions out there is in terms of what's going on in, in your institutions and other institutions is using this term online. And I do think there's important distinction between remote and online, right? I mean, and this is, and, and sometimes, I mean, it's the synchronistic versus the asynchronistic, right? I mean, Pradeep, most of your classes are remote but they're still are taught by faculty in reaction with students. And, and how, what are your faculty telling you, and, uh, Pradeep and then Kurt, in terms of how they're maintaining connections uh, with their students in this remote environment? So, you know, it's amazing how many different creative ideas have come about. So, you know, I can understand uh, remote teaching much more easily than I can understand uh, student affairs doing remote tours. So if you're a prospective parent or student, we do remote tours, virtual reality tours. We build uh, cohort groups and uh, societies uh, for you to interact with remotely. So I think there's a lot of creative ideas that have been out there now. So I don't see this remote and online kind of going away. I see this as a way to amplify our in-person experience, enhance our in-person experience. And I think that's one positive thing that has come out of this uh, pandemic. I have a good friend uh, who <laughs> describes his children. He says, they, I, I believe they are learning remotely, not remotely learning. So, <laughs> 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 so we, we hope that's the case. But it is a, a challenge for us, and uh, creativity has uh, been the uh, hallmark of the, the past few months. And I'm sure... We'll, we'll end up with some uh, very creative learning environment on a permanent uh, basis. So one of the disparities that have been really amplified in this is, I don't know how to describe it. So for example, the lack of access to bandwidth at home, uh, which is primarily an issue of infrastructure in the country, but also an issue of the companies not investing in that infrastructure in low-income neighborhoods. So that's one. Secondly, this is from my son, who actually is uh, doing his uh, two-year uh, Teach for America uh, in Phoenix and uh, in a high school which is like 98% Latino, free lunch. And uh, he has students who don't want to be on camera when it's a mandate that if you're in class, you'll be on camera. So he tried to find out what's happening. And the students didn't want people to see the living conditions they were in or the closet they were sitting in. So it's unbelievable how this has allowed each one of us to go into somebody else's bedroom and living conditions and become a little bit more, uh, how should I say, uh, intrusive then we we do it's not like we want to be intrusive but that's the way that it's perceived by the person on the other end right uh not being on camera is considered to be like impolite and not acceptable so it, 
you know, there's a whole lot of issues that are coming out. And I think we as a society have to start dealing with them. Yeah, some of our students, in fact, the uh, head of our student government association asked us to adopt a policy that the faculty wouldn't require you to have your camera on. But faculty is pushed back on that, too, because they, this is the best way they can take attendance, because <laughs> apparently some students are able to just, uh, you know, put a, a photo up there and go off and, and do other things <laughs> while uh, that hour or so is, is running. So it's been a, an interesting uh, debate. And uh, generally, it's been uh, resolved, though, that uh, the faculty has been very flexible. Hope They're hoping that this issue uh, dies down over the, you know, coming weeks and months. I think, Pradeep, you made a good point earlier about, you know, the, the significant number of your students who are Pell Grant recipients and how basically the campus is a shelter for them and it somewhat lessens the it, it somewhat lessens the disparities, right? They, they all come together at UCSD, whereas what's going on now highlights those disparities. You know, some of our some children have luxury of large private homes, all that, and others don't. And we're seeing that in areas like standardized testing and things like that. So, so both of these pandemics, right, have have brought highlight onto those disparities and how they're impacting our society. And so, let's get to this sort of broader issue. What do you see going into the future in terms of the, to what extent have both of these in a complementary way changed your thinking about the future and role of higher education and, and things you think might need to be done? Let's, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that as, as, as leaders. So from my perspective, I don't think the role of higher education is going to be any different or should change. But I think the policies of this country that support higher education, that support access, that create the financial infrastructure for people to get access to higher education, I think we need to really rethink those policies. Like take Pell Grants, for example. Their number has not changed at all, as in the dollar value. And we need to rethink that, to rethink how we are supporting colleges. We need to rethink what does it mean to be a private college that is getting a significant tax subsidy based on money raised for endowment and how that is being used or not used. So I actually am more hopeful than not. I hope that we don't go to the extreme of uh, free education because I don't know if that is going to be useful and good for everybody. But I do hope that education has to be completely affordable and accessible for everybody who's qualified and wants to access it. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think at least I, I, what I've seen in Maryland, that we're going to have a challenge to convince a certain group of our young people that a four-year education experience is worth their investment. Many are seeing that too many people who have a four-year degree are in positions that really didn't require a, a, a four-year degree. Some uh, companies are saying, uh, we'll hire you, we'll train you, you know, get some life experience out there, not necessarily a, a four-year degree, we'll tr train you, get some certificates maybe, and then you can have a good uh, middle-class life. Now, that's for a certain part of our society. I'm not talking about people who are interested in, in, you know, research activity, but those who have been coming to the university, basically to get that degree as a stamp of approval to move on. That's going to be a, a challenge. My hope, though, is that 
the public sector, particularly the, the state legislatures, will start to reverse course and see that there's such an important value to investing in higher education. And in our community, they talk a lot about the need to have more employers uh, here. Let's do what we can to provide you know, carrots for people to move their companies and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Investing in, in higher education and allowing people to get uh, the, t- the uh, skills and enhance their talent to be contributors to community, to me, is really worth the investment. And I'm hoping that state legislatures once again start to make those investments. Uh, they've been kind of turning away in the last few years, and which has allowed for an incredible increase in the price of public uh, universities. And, and I think that, that that has to change. That has to be reversed. So, Kurt, I think actually you make good points, but I also think we have to change our egalitarian view where we have basically put four-year degree as uh, the road to freedom and the road to better quality of life, whereas there are diplomas, there are skill-based work you can do. For example, I was at a high, visiting a high school and I'm talking to this uh, 18-year-old young man. I said, what do you want to do? He says, I'm going to be an underwater welder. And he says, I do this now and I make close to 150000 a year. There are very few people who, even with a four-year degree, make 150000 at age 18. All of these, you know, electricians, plumbers, underwater welding, they're all of these jobs that were very solid middle-class American jobs that have gone away, partly because they went away and partly because of our view that only a four-year degree leads to a better quality of life. And I think the country needs a more balanced approach towards education and not stratifying it, but giving people different options, not making one better than the other. Right. I agree. I guess... One of the things, and, and uh, you know, I'm a recovering politician, so, so uh, I look at our, our, our community. Uh, there was a 20-year a gap from the time I left high school to the time I became mayor of Baltimore. In that 20-year period, the largest private employer had been Bethlehem Steel Sparrows Point uh, plant. By the time I became mayor, the largest private employer was Johns Hopkins University and Health System. And so the there were still jobs out there in the city, but they required a level of education that was very different than, you know, what had occurred uh, 20 years previously. So I guess the one thing that I have tried to, uh, it's been consistent in my career, is to ask people to be committed to lifelong learning. And and you're right, it doesn't necessarily have to be towards the four-year degree as but but uh, just a sense that the economy is going to change the intellectual challenges will change they will transform you've got to commit yourself to lifelong learning and that's one of the things that we're trying to do in our community well i i think pretty you're pointing to that you know the need to, to to make sure that people understand they have options and can kurt's talking about people having opportunities. And it's really a combination of those things, right? Understanding there's a broad base of options, but everybody should have equal opportunity for those options. And that's one of the places where we're really not not doing a very good job. You know, we're coming towards the end of our time. Just some, you know, final remarks or, or thoughts about, uh, about lessons coming out of this. Uh, you're both impressive leaders. You both led your institutions in these critical times. And, you know, your creativity, your, your vision, your adaptability to the situation are all, are all exemplary. Just some final words and thoughts you, you, you'd want to share about 
for the rest of us, rest of us mortals. <laughs> well, let me just uh, just one one for me, uh, Stephen, and uh, and maybe Pradeep has uh, experienced the same thing. I've spent a fair amount of time trying to convince our alumni that their investment is important, even if the legislature does not. They looked at a public institution and traditionally they've said, well, go to the legislature. Let's, you know, they, they'll, they'll take care of it. When I was in college, that's where the money came from, was the legislature. Um, slowly but surely, we're starting to see private, the alumni recognize that they should invest uh, in public institutions. Uh, I think all of us have created foundations to support our institutions. And more and more, we've got to get the, the uh, uh, private alumni to be supportive uh, of that. And that, that's an important lesson that all of us, I think, are, are learning. So clearly that I would uh, completely subscribe to. But let me add a little bit different, which I'm sure Kurt would ought to subscribe to. I always thought of racism to be bad. But I think what this pandemic has taught me is anti-racism is exactly what we want to deal with, not necessarily racism. Because anti-racism is a very, uh, how should I say, proactive way of dealing with equality uh, in this society. This pandemic also made it clear that the disparities are and their impacts are way worse than we had imagined before. So I think as educational institutions, we need to be now focused on really causing systemic change rather than just responding to a list of demands and checking boxes from these students and faculty. Uh, and then 10 years later, the same thing happens again. I think I want to see all of us as academic leaders join in making systemic change seriously. If we cannot do it, nobody can do it. That I know. Well, that's, that's, truly, that's truly a compelling message. And, and I want to thank you both for a very, very interesting discussion. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your visions. And thanks for everything you do every day for your students and for our country. Thank you. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod. Copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.